In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You're advised that any views expressed by the hosts or their guests are not necessarily the views of Tuggy Entertainment or its partners. on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the and welcome another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. And welcome to, what? I don't know. It's a new show because we're talking about cryptozoology, which is kind of weird. But anyways, I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm, the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England Zone, Van Helsink. With me all the way from across the pond, Filled with krakens is Mr. Parascience himself, Steve Parsons. Good, yeah. Good afternoon, Ron. That caught us all out because there was no intro. <laughs> mm. Oh well, we didn't you get the it. intro over the Skype headset, so we just chatted. Ah, that's good. And also uh, joining us is, I believe, Mr. Cal Cooper. Hello, Ron. How are you doing? Good. Glad to have you here as well. So we're going mm-hmm. a different route. That we're going to uh, cryptozoology and, and krakens and Loch Ness. And well, well, not necessarily, because Gordon, our guest tonight, is not just um, an expert on uh, things relating to the Loch Ness Monster and cryptozoology. Gordon, uh, well... I've spent many, oh, one very particular drunken night with Gordon in Edinburgh. Um, but this, Gordon is an exceptional gentleman uh, whose knowledge of Fortiana, in its broadest sense, um, is unrivaled, in my opinion. Oh, there you go. But before we get into that, I, I do have to mention one thing. I know that this next weekend for us here in the States is the beginning of Daylight Savings Time. Uh, Yeah, I know. I know what happens. And so usually when when Richard was here doing the show, he wouldn't wouldn't show up because he'd be an hour late and a day off or whatever. Uh, But those carrier pigeons quite didn't make it over there in time. (laughs) But uh, so are you still on regular time next year and next week? Uh, well, I don't know, but we'll figure it out. We did last time you change, you Americans changed the clocks a week a week differently than we did. Okay. It'll and, figure and speak, itself out. And speaking of that, yesterday was actually the anniversary of the death of William Willett. Who? William Willett. He was the one that invented daylight savings time. Well, thank goodness for him. 1915 he died. Poor well, chap. Well, I'm glad to see the back of him, because I remember when we, we tried an experiment over here and we all went to school in the dark, which was fun. Um, <laughs> I, we're so far west here that, I mean, we're actually, I think, 
in terms of uh, UK time, um, which is, of course, Greenwich, uh, we're 21 minutes behind them. Um, so we have our own time out here. It's called Pembrokeshire time. I'm sure it is. Anyways, uh, enough of this chit-chat. Uh, let's bring on, I guess, would you like to introduce us to oh, him yeah. for us? Yeah, absolute pleasure to welcome Gordon. As I said earlier, um, I remember one uh, particularly drunken night up in up in Edinburgh, swapping uh, accounts of what we had back home in our in, in our respective cabinets. Um, he he completely won. Um, based up in Edinburgh, uh, one of the UK's probably the world's leading fourteen researchers, author, uh, journalist, blogger all-round good egg, Gordon Rutter. Hi there. Yeah. I'm blushing like crazy here, guys. It's Thanks true, it's true, though. It's true. <laughs> I remember that night. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't have had that much to drink if you can remember it, then. <laughs> there you go. So, so Gordon, uh, he throws this word about 14, 14... Say it again for me. 14... 14. Steven? Fourteen. Would you like to explain it for our states people? Because uh, yeah, that's, sure, no it's problem. Rather a it's rather obscure word. Yeah, it's it's managed to make it into the uh, English dictionary a couple of years ago, which was a it was a great uh, a great position to be in. So got some recognition there. But it actually derives from an American, uh, from Charles Fort, and Charles Fort was a writer and he was a collector of anomalous data. So he would literally visit day in, day out, libraries and pour over all of the information that they had and he'd, he'd look in every journal in every book, in every magazine that he could find and he would write down all of the things that struck him as being quirky, bizarre unusual, unexplainable outside of the normal realms of science, so everything from what we would now call UFOs through to the Loch Ness Monster Bigfoot um, falls of rain and frogs from the skies but also more mundane things like, um, like just synchronicity, oh I was thinking of you and the phone rang and all that sort of thing so to honour him and the, and the four books that he, he wrote about the subject, we call the subject Fortian There you go So someday there'll be a Colloquian culture No? No no. Van Helsingian. Van Helsingian. Oh, oh Van, hey, I like that one better. Yeah, anyway. it'll, be, it'll be a book full of bullshit. <laughs> you, can't, you can't say that on the air, by the way. Thank I you very much. I didn't say it. You, on, you listen carefully on the podcast. I didn't say it. Uh, no, it was Cal, right? No, no I didn't say that word. I heard something else. Yeah. <laughs> So, so Cal, I mean, you, you have just listened to the little spiel that Mr. Uh, uh, Fortinian gave us. Uh, is uh, is that stuff that we just totally dismiss, or, or is there any uh, use at all in the uh, parapsychology community? No, we, we certainly don't dismiss it. Parapsychology doesn't necessarily deal with those matters because it does fall into issues such as cryptozoology. And uh, as we said, we, this term was developed to actually put all of these issues in, no, not just cryptozoology, but the fact that people may see UFOs and so forth. So we have uh, Dr. Matt Coburn on once who'd actually spent a lot of time 
um, up in Loch Ness. Um, he was actually following up various accounts of people saying that they'd seen something. And if people say they'd seen um, a creature that's not yet documented as to how it lives, what its habitat's like, and is this rare creature that people keep on having accounts of, then it's certainly worth investigating. But from the viewpoint of parapsychology, we're not necessarily dealing with something psychological or a psychological process. So parapsychology would be looking at psychic phenomena. Is it possible for the mind to extend beyond the body and obtain information it shouldn't otherwise um, have access to? Or is the, uh, is the brain actually capable of surviving beyond physical death or outside of the body? Um, so when it the parapsychologists look at it and see if it is a creation of of the witness's mind rather than a scientific proof uh, or evidence? Uh. Well, you could do, but the general psychologist could look at that, and the sociologist could look at how different groups of people within that particular so- uh, society is kind of maybe kept a myth going. You know, like with, say, Loch Ness, for example, you know, up in Scotland, how do people that actually live around Loch Ness, how do they actually see it? Do they see it more of a myth and legend, or are they more open to believing because they live within that area where people have had those reported sightings? Also, say, Bigfoot as well, there's particular areas where that's been seen as well. So the people that live around there, do they have different views to those people throughout the world that might come and actually try and investigate it for themselves? So it wouldn't necessarily be an issue for parapsychology alone. It's so many different disciplines could get involved, or just general researchers, people that have just got an interest in such weird phenomena, they want to go out and independently investigate it. I'll tell you what is 14. I'll tell you what is 14. Trying to get parapsychologists to actually give you a straight answer and tell you that they actually want to investigate <laughs> all right, something. Then, all right, then. Wait, Ron, all ask me they, the question all, again. All the they do, it, all, all parapsychologists ever do is waffle on about might do's, maybe's, possibly's, and it's all in the mind. I thought you wanted a full explanation. Ron, ask me that same question again. I, I can't because uh, I don't ask want to be Gordon, Ask Gordon about the Loch Ness Monster. Whether yeah, I want to talk about the Loch Ness Monster. Whether there's a reasonable case for it or not. Yes. There you go. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to come right out and, and wear my heart on my sleeve, as we say, and say that I personally do not believe in a physical Loch Ness Monster. Ooh. Okay, take them off the show. Stop them right now. I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry, guys. However, it doesn't mean to say I don't believe in the Loch Ness phenomena. Um, Because as Carl just said... You're talking like a parapsychologist now. Yes, yeah. Steve will beat up the next time he sees me. Um, I mean... There are all these reports that come from Loch Ness and, you know, you can't just turn around to somebody and say you're making it up, you're mistaken, because we weren't there. We didn't see what they saw. So there is a huge body of, of, of information that's come from the Loch and an, an analysis of that information is very, very in- interesting, very useful. It tells us about folklore. It tells us about the way people believe things. It tells us about how people perceive things as well. So, you know, whatever is happening at Loch Ness, it's worth investigating and it's worth, um, it, it's worth checking out because it can tell us so much. And in fact, next month is the 80th anniversary of the first sighting of the, the modern era of the Loch Ness Monster. Wow. Uh, 
it was a couple of, of people who lived on the side of the lock and actually had a hotel uh, on the side of the lock. <laughs> Nothing suspicious there at all. And they were driving home one evening and they basically saw a thrashing about in the water. They never actually described it as a, as a monster or anything like that. The closest that they would come to something like that would have been a description of it as being a big fish. But there are not supposed to be any fish that sort of size in the lock and that really started it that was that coincided with the building of a new road by the side of the lock as well so it did mark an an opening up of that area and people were able to access it a lot more easily than they had in the past and ever since then we've had thousands of sightings photographs film footage everything you name it and um in Edinburgh, we have a, an annual science festival. And this year, as part of the science festival, uh, myself and Charles Paxton, who's a researcher from St Andrews University, we're setting up a, a day-long conference on the Loch Ness Monster. And we've got a whole range of people speaking. And it's roughly split 50-50 between believers and non-believers. And uh, we've got different aspects of evidence being covered. And then at the very end of it, there's going to be a panel discussion, which hopefully will end in fisticuffs. <laughs> <laughs> what's really interesting is, is of course we all know the original photograph that's that's been shown so many times and you know we always get our information from the telly or from books that are always slanted one way or the other i mean what is i mean there has been talk about this photograph where the guy is is said it was a fake on his deathbed and blah 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 blah, blah. what is your take on on some of the evidence that has been collected uh, through the years and especially this photograph I mean, that particular photograph, the version of that that we normally see is really just a close-up of the photograph. Um, if you hunt around online or in the odd book, you will actually find the whole photograph, which shows the shore and everything and puts it in a lot more context. And when you see the, the shore on that particular photograph, you realise how small that particular thing is. Because just seeing it uh, in isolation, it could be absolutely any size, but it does look very, very small. And however, having said that, what a lot of people don't know is that there was a second photograph taken at the time, and this is a, a completely different view, and it looks much more like something in the process of diving underwater. So, um, yeah, I kind of, I must admit the jury's out a little bit on that. As you say, there have been deathbed confessions, but those confessions have um, have described how this this clockwork submarine was modified, and the material that was supposed to have modified the submarine with just actually was not available in, in that time period, in the 1930s, when the photograph was taken. Uh, over here, we call it plastic wood, and it's just used to sort of fill in gaps in your woodwork and things. But that didn't come in until, I believe, the late 1940s. Um, you know, it's th th there are literally whole books that have been written on, the, on that know, single the photograph, thing. the surgeon's one. Um, a lot of people have said that it doesn't fit with the eyewitness sightings. So to actually be able to get rid of it as a hawks does indeed, you know, 
uh, get rid of some contradictory evidence. But over the years, as I say, there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of photographs. And, yes, some of them have definitely been fake. Uh, Some of them have been misidentifications. I've seen plenty of photographs that actually are just birds flying in between the lock and the camera, and they just happen to have their wings at just the right angle when the photograph was taken to make it look very much like the surgeon's photograph. Um, Last time I was up at Loch Ness, I actually collected a piece of driftwood, uh, much to my wife's delight, I must say, because I did end up bringing it back, and it's about six foot long, but it is, again, the perfect shape of Nessie that we all think of as soon as we see it. You know, so if you just saw that stuck in the water or something or floating in the water, you've got your perfect Loch Ness monster there. One of the problems I have with Nessie uh, in terms of evidence is when you look at the biology of the loch, it's, it's a huge body of water. It's about uh, 19, 20 miles long and about a mile wide at its, at its widest point. It's in some spots briefly it's about 900 feet but in general the deepest parts are about 750 feet and it contains more fresh water than all of the other bodies of water in mainland UK put together so it's a huge huge thing yet despite that the amount of life in there is very very small partly because of all the peat that gets washed in from the sides and that means that the clarity of the water is very low so there's very little chance for plants to grow if you haven't got the plants there's nothing to feed on the plants if there's nothing feeding on the plants then there's nothing for the herb for the carnivores to eat and so on so really when you look down to it there's not actually enough for a whole family of Loch Ness monsters to feed on because if there's one and we've been seeing it for the past 80 years you know, it's a very old monster by now, so unless it's just about to die out and become extinct and we've just been incredibly lucky at the time, there must be a family. If there's a family, you're multiplying all the problems up. There are some people who get around that problem (laughs) by saying it feeds on land or it only comes to the water at certain times because there are plenty of land sightings of Nessie as well. So, you know... why we're not seeing it in the water all the time it's because it spends most of its time in the land and it's quite a forested area around there it's easy for things to hide in that land so it could be quite easy for something as big as nessie to to be there and just not be seen do you know gordon when i when i went up to loch ness i um i've been i've spent about three weeks um at various times up there and what struck me when i first arrived because i went up there full of uh yeah, I'd read all the books. I was full of this idea. Well, it's just a myth. It's folklore. Until I actually got to the lock and realised the vast size of this this um, yeah. le- uh, this this body of water, and realised you know watching fishing boats going around, watching tourists driving past the lock, and you know from as you go round it that uh, for the vast majority of its va- of its length, even though there is a road within. 20, 30 metres of its entire length, you can't actually see that much of the water. Um, yeah. And I realised you could put a nuclear submarine into that and most people wouldn't notice it was there. But while we were there, what we were struck, we were talking to one of the um, resident monster hunters, I suppose, Dick Rayner. Um, ah, yeah. yeah. And he was showing us, he'd taken some underwater footage that he'd uh, he'd taken with his this camera system he'd, uh, he'd he'd come up with and it was 
what was uh, very evident was the extraordinary number of eels, uh, two, three-foot-long eels that were living in the loch. And um, we, were, we were discussing the possibility with, with Dick Rayner of, of uh, Nessie actually being something in the large conger eel size, a 15, 20-foot eel. Um, yeah. And that struck me as being as a perfectly credible theory. Totally, because um, eels basically just keep on growing throughout their life until they reach sexual maturity. So if you have an eel that does not reach sexual maturity, perhaps because of a mutation or because of some, some damage that it's suffered or, or something in the water, and there are plenty of chemicals that will do this, that will you know effectively chemically castrate or neuter something, Ouch. then if it doesn't... <laughs> no pin involved, chemicals. Um, <laughs> and if it doesn't reach sexual maturity, it will just keep on growing growing so you know the idea of giant eels is is something that biologically is very very feasible obviously we'd need to catch one in Loch Ness to prove it um there are also sort of migratory species there are there are some people who um think that the that the monster is actually just um beluga that have uh, not beluga they're whales um ah Sturgeon, Sturgeon. Thank you very much. yeah, sturgeon that have that have got lost and wandered into the lock. And if you've ever seen a sturgeon, they can be huge and they do look prehistoric. They're they're armoured. They look hard. They look the sort of thing that if you came across that on a on a dark night, you would definitely run in the opposite direction. Yeah. What what struck me while we were up there um, was we saw seals in the lock of the uh, near Inverness. Um, we obviously didn't see any sturgeons, but we did see small boats. We saw seals, um, and it, we weren't fooled by them. Um, and it struck me that we we were up there. We were on the on the lock side with binoculars and cameras and spending eight hours a day looking at the water. Um, <laughs> But the people who live and work around the lock also, you know, spend a great deal of time, you know, observing this body of water. And I don't think these people are going to be that taken in by a seal or a boat. But I I used to do uh, some fishing, um, sea fishing, and I've seen big congas, uh, 14, 15-foot congas, breaking the surface. And, you know, it does does strike me as, as... a credible suggestion and, and i seem to recall uh, a Nor- one of the norwegian lakes uh, they discovered uh, eel eel larvae uh, that that were mutated and so hadn't reached sexual maturity and they were actually an extraordinary length the larvae themselves instead of being one or two inches long were eight nine ten inches long um and you know supportive of this idea of a mega eel rather than a conger eel. Uh, well, is it necessarily eel. a mutated eel or is it just a species that we uh, are not cognizant of or is it perhaps a species that we thought were extinct and is still around? Well, I, I don't know, but just looking at the, the, the chat room, there's, there's a question that says, how come they never find a corpse? Now, oh, good I, question. I mean, it's, it's an excellent question, which I'll, I'll hand over to Gordon, but I don't know anybody who finds regularly eels washed up and the population must run into the tens of thousands that, at the lock. I mean, eels are, are things that will feed on detritus, so if you've got a big monster 
a big sturgeon, a big eel, whatever it is falling down dead on the bottom of the lock, those eels are going to descend on it like it's all their Christmases, all their birthdays, all their yeah. Thanksgivings come all at once. So they're going to eat it. It's going to be gone. Mm. And yeah, if I'm right, you, if I remember you right... Have, you'd have a skeleton, though. Wouldn't you have a skeleton? Or, or, well, aren't it was cartilaginous? Huh. Yeah, so you're not going to get a, a, a skeleton in the sense. I mean, that, that's, that's the know. thing is, I mean, isn't that the biggest complaint about all cryptozoology? Is is like show us the proof? Where's the bodies? Where's Bigfoot's bodies? Where's the you know the giant serpent body? The uh, whatever the Chupacabra or wherever they are, it, it, you know that's what they're always looking for. But when was the last time anyone sort of out wandering? came across a bear's body or a deer's body or something like that and you know yeah, if something like point. Bigfoot Very exists it's a much smaller population so you know the chances of finding them are smaller and we we don't often find bear's bodies and things like that yet we know they exist that's true it's a good point Again, it's all, it's all down to the biology in that, you know, as soon as something as full of food as that dies, everything else comes out on it and just goes for it big time because they don't know when they're going to get another sample of food that size. And they just really go for it. And very, very quickly, there's nothing left. I read some other theories a while ago that it probably wasn't something big if the Loch Ness monster did exist, but it would be nothing more than the size of a Komodo dragon or something like that, some small oh, water really? lizard that, that's basically gone unnoticed. That was just one thing that I read a while ago that I thought was fairly valid as to why not that many people had seen it. What that, do you that's think, a good point, uh, Cal. That's, yeah, that would make a lot of sense if it isn't that big. The, and, and if the eels are carnivorous as, as you say they are, then that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, something a lot smaller is a lot easier to hide, a lot harder to see, and it obviously needs a heck of a lot less food to survive on, so it can live within the within the biology of the of the loch as it currently stands. Well, nope. certainly the the quantity of eels within Loch Ness is is exceptional. Um, is it really? Know, it, run, yeah. it, it runs into you know mega thousands we've got a question which we might just get in before the break uh coming the crack for gordon it's what does he think to the doc shields photograph is it a painting or is it a photograph <laughs> fake <laughs> i mean if if you look really closely at it on a good quality copy you can actually see the ripples through the body of the monster Right. Okay, so that's answered that one. And yeah. after the break, I'd like to, because we have a big cat epidemic that's broken out in Pembrokeshire this last couple of uh, months, uh, including a friend of mine who had an extraordinarily close-up encounter with uh, what he describes as a giant animal one and a half times bigger than a, a German shepherd uh, from 10 feet in broad daylight. Um, so I'd like to bring it round to big cats after the break, if I can, Ron. Right, but um, before we go to the break, and I haven't heard the music yet, so uh, I actually have a ge uh, question for any of you. Actually, uh, Steve, you have been there, and, and Gordon is certainly investigated too. What is the geology of the, the area around the, the lock? Are we talking about uh, a lot of cliffs, a lot of you know possible caves, or, you know that, that type of geology? It's it's quite steep around the area. Um, I mean, it's... 
basically, if you took the water out of the lock, you've got something that's that's very V-shaped along the whole of the valley kind of thing. Um, so in some areas, it can be quite difficult to actually get down to the water side. Um, caves, there are some people who claim that there are caves, but there's no real evidence of that. There's a heck of a lot of sediment in the bottom, though, so that could be blocking up caves that are there. But the the various sonar scans and the um, and the various remote operated vehicles... Okay, that being the music, we do have to take the break. So you're listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Cal Cooper, Steve Parsons, Ron Kolick, and our special guest, Good, and, and we are talking cryptozoology, monsters, and Fortinian stuff. And we'll be right back after the following messages right here on Tojanet, Parax, Ghost Channel, and beyond. Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. Why can't we hear the station? 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com Lots to see and do in a feel-good place an oasis in this hectic world. And I'm the lead investigator of East Bridgewater's Most Haunted. And we'd like to invite you to tune in. Ghost Chronicles, the next generation. Every Wednesday night. At 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on www.toginet.com. So, so yeah, what are they going to hear on this stupid show? What are they going to hear? They are going to hear things that they can't believe are happening. Like uh, Beyond Bizarre. And Cemetery Tripping. Oh, that's your deal, right? Absolutely. Yeah, one of these days you're going to get uh, so scared of one of these cemetery tripping things that uh, you'll, I'll have to get a new co-host. <laughs> I am brave beyond belief. Nothing yeah, we'll see. scares me. Except so anyways, if you're bored and you got nothing to do on Wednesday night, tune in to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Dan and Ron. See you then.
And we are back. You are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Steve Parsons, Cal Cooper, Ron Kolick, and a very special guest, Gordon Rudder, right here on Tojanet, Pararex, Ghost Channel, and beyond. So, actually, before the break, uh, Steve had a question for you. So you want to go with that, Steve? Uh, or Cal, do you have anything you want to finish up on the, uh, uh, with the uh, Loch Ness Monster? Uh, nope, no. Steve, carry on with your next question. Carry well, on, Steve. It, it, it's continuing the theme of um, cryptozoology because um, I live in West Wales in Pembrokeshire, as, as most people know. And over the last uh, six or seven months, um, and even a little bit before that, we've had quite a spate of big cat sightings going on. Um, culminating uh, last week, there was uh, quite a good sighting um, that was reported in the local media. But yesterday evening, I was talking to a friend who has a small holding. There's a guy who's completely level-headed, uh, runs his own business. Um, but he was telling me that uh, he got up yesterday morning about... Uh, he was in the kitchen making breakfast about ten past seven. It was, it was daylight. It was a sunny morning. Um, and as he stood and looked out of the kitchen window, he said, first he thought it was a fox, then he realised that it was way bigger than a German shepherd, had a mean-looking face and was dark in colour. He said, if it had been a fox, he'd have gone out and shooed it away. He said he didn't know what it was, but there was no way was he opening the back door. He ran to get his uh, phone camera, but of course, by the time he came back, it had gone. Um, Should have got a gun and shot the damn thing, then we'd have a yeah. corpse. Um, so I'm just, I mean, you know, continuing this cryptozoology thing, we have, you know, regularly here in the UK, um, without any substantial proof so far, these regular sightings of these big, big pussycats. So, Gordon, what do you think of all this pussycat stuff? Well, actually, there, there, there is some proof. Um, is in there? the 1980s, up in Inverness, so sticking with uh, the Loch Ness moment, um, the Loch Ness <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there was a puma caught in that area. Uh, and really? And it lived on for a year or so, and it's now in the museum at Inverness. And it's, it's stuffed, it's there for everybody to see. Um, it was in beautiful condition when it, was, when it was captured, so, you know, the suggestion is that it was an escaped pet, it couldn't have been something that had been living on the wild because it was that, that good, that good condition. But uh, yeah, that was in the 1980s. That was that was actually caught and seen by everybody. Um, I've seen it myself. I've been you know, been up to the museum and, and had a look and had my photograph taken standing next to it, which I felt I pretty much had to do really. Um, and we've got again, we've got lots of photographs, but most of them are really um, you know little blobby photographs and not the the best thing that you're seeing in the world um but there are lots of pictures as well oh well sorry not pictures but there are lots of casts of footprints and things like that and there are lots and lots of witnesses who do know what it is they're talking about and and they seem quite happy that what is being seen are these are these so-called alien big cats um where where i live now in edinburgh um the, the supposedly one about 
what, probably about two miles away from me in the local hills. And it's the countryside rangers who are reporting these things. So the people who are out in that area and the people who would know what what an Alsatian footprint and that sort of thing actually looks like. And similarly, in Durham, in England... There, there is a wildlife police liaison officer who has seen several big cats himself. So he is totally convinced that, that they exist because anything that ever came in reported to, um, to the police, anything to do with wildlife, went to him. And because he went out on all these calls, he was lucky enough to see three or four of these different things, a guy by the name of Sergeant Eddie Bell. Um, so he's convinced. Um, I don't think there are huge numbers of these things but they're probably there i don't see why not um and if people are saying how did they get there well back in the 70s the dangerous dangerous animals act came into being uh prior to that anyone who had the money could keep a big cat or anything of that nature as a pet and a lot of people did i can remember watching uh, this will mean something to the british view uh, british listeners here i can remember watching blue peter and val singleton taking a lion for a walk mm-hmm. and it was you know it was on a lead and she went into the local corner sweet shop and all this sort of thing uh, so it was a fair you know it was unusual but it did happen and then this this act came in such that people could not keep these things unless they had uh, suitable cages of a particular type, amount of protection, suitable size, and loads and loads of regulations like that, which, quite frankly, put a lot of people off. And some of them just thought, oh, flipping heck, I'm sick of this, I'm not going to do it, I'll just let it go and let it fend for itself. So you think they just escaped pets or released pets? Uh, uh, Yeah. Okay. Given the we, I actually have to interrupt you. There has to be a breeding population, though, doesn't there? Yeah, yeah well, if there's yeah, enough, I mean, it could be. But anyways, going back to Loch Ness, no, so we have a couple of questions from the uh, Pararax yeah. chat room, and they wanted to know about uh, rivers running into the, the lock uh, that possibly the, the creature can go in and out of the lock. Is that one of the theories? Yeah, there's a there's a river that comes out of it um, at the sort of top north end, um, and that leads out into the North Sea ultimately. Um, to get through that, there are a couple of locks that it has to navigate. What about an um, underground river? That's what they're talking about, an underwater. Oh you know, right, okay. Um, I mean, leading. If the underground river is connected to the sea, there's actually quite a big difference in height between the two areas. So if there was an underground river from Loch Ness to the sea, basically the loch would actually drain away. Um, I'm not aware of any genuine evidence that there is any underground rivers feeding into the lock. So again, you've got the problem with the terrain around there. Um, You can do tests to see if water is flowing in particular areas so right. putting dye in and things dye like in, that right. and yeah. seeing where it comes out and i'm not aware of any uh, of any tests that have been done uh, in loch ness using that so it is possible that there are that there are underground rivers and it's going to somewhere you know a little bit more uninhabited to to pop out and and bask on the shore kind of thing right yeah, you know, one of the problems, you, you talked about releasing pets and stuff, and, and one of the problems uh, in Florida uh, is that during one of the hurricanes, 
a uh, reptile f- uh, farm was was totally destroyed, and it released all these exotic snakes into the Everglades. And right now we have a huge uh, problem with uh, boa constrictors and other non-indigenous uh, species into the swamps. They're actually going out and, and uh, uh, hunting them. Uh, you know, so it, it makes sense that, yeah, if someone released uh, their pets out in the wild and there was enough room where they could breed, then, uh, uh, yeah, it could be the result of some of the sightings that are seen today. Yep. Of course, it's not just... <laughs> it's, it's, it's continu- well, no one want to comment on that. <laughs> well, we, we also... I mean, it's not just Loch Ness, is it? I mean, I know you've got... Um, Oh, I can't remember. Champ. Ogopogo and Champ. Champ. And, but, yep. but we also have, you know, we have monsters in the Scottish and Welsh lock, uh, lakes and locks too. Uh, lock Rannoch, Tay, um, Mora, Lock Mora, yeah, uh, Lock Shield. Uh, Bala Lake has got, yep. um, has got Teggy. Um, you know, and and where I am down at Milford Haven, we've we've got you know quite a quite a number of reports from Cardigan Bay and indeed Milford Haven. It's at the Milford Haven uh, Sea Waterway of seagoing um, monsters. You know, so it, there is quite there's quite a you know a history of them in and around the UK and further afield. Right. Yeah, I mean, with with the sea in particular, um, you've got so much space out there, and we're still discovering massive things in the sea. So, you know, why not a monster? Because a monster's just something that we call a monster. So Except that we don't you know, know, so we call it a monster. Exactly. So, you know, a few years ago, we didn't know about things like the mega mouth shark, which is, what, 20, 30 feet long and can swallow a person whole. It doesn't because it doesn't feed on meat. But, you know, it's a huge, huge animal. And it was only it was only discovered in the 1980s. So there is plenty of scope for for massive things out there. But one interesting thing to to uh cotton on to what Steve was saying there about the range of lakes that has them if you look at the lakes that do have uh, alleged monsters in them it's actually a band kind of all around the same latitude around the earth which again biologically speaking is what you'd expect because you've got you know, similar conditions at similar altitudes, at similar geographical locations. So consequently, you get similar types of animals. And and there are sort of a band north predominantly and a slightly smaller band less populated to the south as well. Um, You know, so you're not seeing them in every single possible area. You're seeing them in a concentrated band, which actually does give a bit more credence to it being something biological in nature. Isn't it between latitude 51 and 55? Memory Might serves be. me right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, what about, but what about the ones in the middle of Africa? There's, there's, there's lakes in, in... Is it Congo? There's a, there's a lake yeah. monster there as well, isn't there? Just to throw a spanner in the works. Well, no, the sort of thing you're seeing down there seems, seems to be totally different. Um, you're talking Mukele and Bembe and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the lake monsters that, that we're seeing in Loch Ness and associated areas, those seem predominantly to be 
aquatic type of things. So things that are spending the bulk of their time in the water. Um, and people are saying, you know, oh, yes, they look like plesiosaurs from, from uh, dinosaur books and all that sort of thing. So, so we'll stick with that for a moment. And when we look at Mukele and Bembe, they're saying that's more like a brontosaurus. So right. something that's actually a, a, a four-legged animal which spends part of its time in the water. And there are also reports of things from the same area that, you know, have horns coming out of their head, which sound much more like triceratops and things like that. So those reports are more the, the terrestrial kind of dinosaur as opposed to the aquatic well, technically, plesiosaurs are not dinosaurs, but let's not quibble. Uh, more than the aquatic <laughs> dinosaur that we're fighting, um, it, uh, reported from Loch Ness and areas like that. So, you know, you, you, you're getting slightly different things in those two areas. With the, I, I think one of the most amusing explanations, I mean, there have been many, many uh, explanations put forward for the Loch Ness Monster and, other, and the other lake monsters, was one that I encountered only a few years ago, actually. It, was, it made the papers, and I'm sure Gordon was aware of it, um, was it was an elephant supposedly swimming across Loch Ness. <laughs> do you remember that one? totally do um the 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 guy who got that in the papers recently was actually a friend of mine um he's a he's a a lecturer over at um uh over in in glasgow and he's called neil clark and he's he's totally into dinosaurs and his his nickname is neil jurassic clark um and in I think it was 2006 he came up with this idea and, and he got it in the papers and everything and I pointed out to him I, I really didn't want to sort of destroy his, his research or anything but I did point out that one of the places he, he got it published in was New Scientist magazine and I was able to show him the issue from 1980 where they had exactly the same story that somebody else had come up with so it wasn't a new story, he'd obviously discovered it independently but it was you know something that people had put forward before and there are photographs of um, of elephants swimming and you do look at it and you think well actually that is a heck of a lot like the surgeon's photograph uh, with the trunk sticking out and the dome of its head <laughs> and you just think oh heck <laughs> it's a bit bizarre because zoos uh, zoos uh, circuses did around the highlands not now obviously um, but there are reports of elephants being bathed in Loch Ness so you know there might have been one sighting of an elephant in Loch Ness that people ascribe to a monster but to say that the whole thing the whole phenomena is an elephant, obviously, is just put forward as a joke. We actually but. have a couple of more questions from the Parallax chat room, and one was, how unpopulated is the area around, Lynette, around Loch Ness? In other words, is it really sparsely populated? Is it heavily populated? You've you've got a couple of small villages around the loch itself, um, and then at the Inverness end, you've got... Well, for what <laughs> for the area 
you've got a, a reasonably sized town. But at one end, you've got Fort Augustus. And quite frankly, Fort Augustus, to give you an indication of the size of it, uh, once the tourist season has finished, you pretty much need to shut up shop. Um, the, the whole industry around there is, is geared towards the tourists. There are three or four pubs. And as I say, during the winter, they probably don't do very much business. Um, at the side we'll of the rock, uh, yeah, yeah, try them out. Stephen, I'll have to visit them. <laughs> having said that, though, Gordon, I mean, it is for, it is absolutely true that um, hundreds of people work daily along the shores of the loch. Um, you've got people on the land, you've got the hotels, you've got the businesses that surround the loch. Um, and, of course, you've got the main... Uh, it's the A9, isn't it, that runs up yeah, to Yeah, but they're not all looking at the water. And, yeah, well, and, that's, that's the thing you know, I said at the start, because what, that's what struck me when I first went up there, is the this busy main road that runs right alongside the lock, and yet for so many of the 20-odd miles of its length, you can't actually see the water, because the council took this brilliant idea a few years ago and planted a pine forest between the road and the, and, and the lock itself, except for a few key tourist uh, vantage points um, <laughs> for Urquhart uh, Castle. Um, where people, of course, congregating, get their picture taken, uh, and, you know, hopefully in the background will appear Nessie. And, you know, I, I remember at the time thinking, you know, you could put a nuclear submarine in there, and 90% of the people around the lock wouldn't see the damn thing. And someone also asked about Boiskanine Castle, formerly owned by Alistair Crowley and Jimmy Page. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, Boleskine House. It's it's really just a, a sort of traditional bungalow on the uh, eastern coast of Loch Ness, and and the big road that we're talking about is the A82, and that's on the western side of the loch. So on the side where Boleskine House is, it's incredibly quiet. It's a, a very w- narrow, winding road. You've got to be really going there to be on that road. You've got to go to to somewhere specific, because if you just want to get up from one side of the lock to the other, you're not going to go up that road. Um, And Boleskine has some great ghosts as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, at the early part of the 20th century, it was bought by Alistair Crowley, who uh, supposedly did some massive summoning there, and he he wasn't competent enough to do it. And and the stories go that he was quite successful, and he ultimately sort of opened a portal that's never been closed since, which has given rise to various ghost stories and all this sort of thing. And Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, fascinated by Alistair Crowley, so he bought bought the place and he owned it for oh gosh was it as much as 10 years something like that um and ultimately only spent about three weeks there because he was just touring with led zepp all the time um the the current owners if you go up and and knock on the door and say can we come in and uh, and have a look at alistair crowley's old house uh they, they will say no <laughs> uh, they, they've got lots of big dogs <laughs> so you don't really want to be doing that <laughs> no i tried that as well i made that mistake we have a question um in, from the chat room. This is an interesting one because it combines, well, I guess several 14 aspects. Could the monster have come from space? Oh, is that a serious uh, question? Uh, <laughs> well, it, it's, been, it's been posed, so I guess it needs an answer. I guess, all right, be, there you we, go. We would be remiss not to. Yes, I, I stand corrected. 
<laughs> there are no bad questions, only bad answers. Um, well, some people out there may well be fans of one of the greatest television shows on the planet. I'm talking about Doctor Who. Wash <laughs> your mouth out with soap, sir. I thought it was uh, Downton Abbey, Ron. Oh, dear. Oh, that too. <laughs> and in one episode of Doctor Who, uh, during Tom Baker's time in the role, uh, they had a, a story with monsters called Zygons, and the Zygons had a, had a, a pet called the Scarrison. And the Scarrison basically lived in Loch Ness, and the Scarrison was the Loch Ness monster. And once the Zions were destroyed at the end of the story, uh, the Loch Ness monster just swam back to the only location it knew, and it continued living there. So, you know, there's documentary proof that the monster is from outer yeah. space. Uh, we've got the, the video footage to prove it. And of course, um, I think for, for our American listeners, we also must uh, we, we should also point out that the monster was famously explained in the Ted da uh, in a movie starring Ted Danson. Yeah, I, I was going to write that several times. I didn't get the chance. <laughs> who went over <laughs> as a skeptical? Who went over as a skeptical scientist, and with the aid of uh, a young girl who lived on the lock side, actually encountered the monster. So there you go. Yeah, and collected eggs as well as memory serves. That's right. <laughs> I actually have a question for Cal on, on this thing. Is, 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 these monsters, these cryptos that we see, are they more a creation of our own minds? I mean, seriously thinking that it, it, if we have an indigenous species and we're not cognizant of it and it becomes a monster to us, uh, and the other way around, if you have indigenous species and, and something odd comes in, it's, it becomes a monster. It, 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 are these possibly a creation of our own minds? Well, it's still important psychology. I think Gordon raised that at the start, where he said he doesn't necessarily believe that the monster exists. But he certainly believes in the, the phenomena of uh, the Loch Ness. Um, I mean, I was speaking to him recently in Grantham. I'd just given a talk, and a guy came up to me and telling him about, uh, about 25 years ago. He was hitchhiking uh, around Loch Ness, and he was speaking to a couple of friends, and he was at um, a point where he got a perfect of the lock, and they were facing away from it. And he had he got a backpack on, and he got cameras in his pocket and all sorts. And just as they were speaking to him, his mind just wandered because he saw something in his peripheral vision in the lock. So he actually turned his head to actually look and just thought, oh, it's somewhere in a rowing boat fishing. And then as he watched, it actually grew in size so his neck was actually extending up from the water. And he was thinking in his mind, oh, my God, you know, I'm actually seeing the last monster. But he just stood there, frozen solid, just watching in interest the oh. fact that he was actually seeing something he couldn't explain. So even though he got the camera to hand, he's frozen just to watch it and actually see the whole thing play out, you know, instead of looking away and blink, you've missed it, or blink and it's gone. So, you know, there are some eyewitness accounts that you think, well, that's unusual. So that was, a, you know, it's certainly interesting in terms of psychology, if our mind is playing tricks and creating this illusion of something being there. But that was something I was going to post to Gordon. Gordon, do you think there are some eyewitness accounts that are worth following up with regards to Loch Ness, like that one in particular that I've just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, the, the, these people are seeing something. And as you say, that, that, that itself is going to tell us 
lots of exciting things, but not necessarily that there is a monster. So I think all, all accounts are, are definitely worth following as far as we can. But unfortunately, as you've just described, people who are seeing things that are unexpected, they're freezing and they're not getting the, the evidence that would necessarily have, have convinced those of us who didn't see it. Um, I mean, the best thing in the world would be if everybody could be standing on the side of the lock and Nessie would come up and, and do a dance and then we could all be convinced. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's never going to happen. So, no, you, so, you need yeah. a thistle whistle. Do you remember that? Oh, the oh, old kids a thistle whistle. There was the old kids' cartoon called Family Ness. And if you had a thistle whistle that you blew by the lock, you could have all the Loch Ness monsters come out of the water so you had all the evidence you wanted. Oh, you know that's awesome. Well, it was I, in the was, early 90s. I was I was more sort of a Spider-Man kind of guy, so I'm afraid oh. I missed the family nest and things. Sorry. Family nest was awesome. <laughs> thank, okay, God okay. I'm, thank God I'm the older generation and don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and and so going on the cryptozoology thing, I mean, we had to jump up oh, actually the pizza from the dead, so we're just about out of time. Quick thing, the black shuck, the hellhounds, are they real? They're not something that's seen nowadays, are they? Yes. Uh, oh, okay. Steve, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm not going to take over the answer, Gordon. But, but yeah, there, there are still, uh, as, as Dr. Simon Sherwood will, will, will attest, there are still uh, accounts coming in of the black dogs as well. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. We've got a couple in Northampton, I think, that he's still doing some research on at the moment. Hmm. There's none hmm. on my land over there, is there? Well, we we did talk with Simon. We did actually pose the question whether some of these big uh, black dogs could actually be uh, black cats because um, you know of the similarities. Uh, whether you know they're getting mixed up for um, alien black cats. Well, okay, there you go. So, anyways, <laughs> I know we're out of uh, running out of time. Uh, Gordon uh, Rudder has been our guest. Uh, Gordon, do you have a uh, website or anything you would like to, if someone wanted to get a hold of you or, or reach you, how could they do that? Yeah, sure. Two different websites. Um, we've got the Loch Ness uh, website, which is specific to the conference, and that's Loch Ness. Sorry, that's not. That's nessie80.co.uk. That has all the details about the conference. It also has contact details for me on there. And I've also got my own personal website, which is gordonrutter.com. doesn't come much easier than that. Gordon Rutter, that's R-U-T-T-E-R. That's correct, yep. As, as us Americans say. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Cal, uh, you going to be anywhere before we go? we got like 10 seconds, 7 seconds. I'm all um, over the place writing stuff and giving five, lectures. Someone might see me somewhere. Three, Steve. Two. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> bye. I can see the countdown. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. But, uh, anyways, uh, you've been listening to Ghost Chronicles uh, International with uh, Mr. Parascience Steve Parsons, uh, the rock parapsychologist Cal Cooper in New England's own Van Helsink, Ron Kolick, right here on Tochinet, Parax, Ghost Channel, and beyond. And our special guest, of course, has been Gordon Rudder. So we want to thank you, Gordon. Thank you so much. And uh, it was certainly interesting. We'd love to have you back again. And uh, if I ever get over there, I'd like to meet you. That'd be excellent. It's been my pleasure. Thanks very much. You have to take me to one of those pubs that has, needs the business. 
Definitely. It's a date. <laughs> don't, don't let Gordon take you to a pub. Good night. Go for it. <laughs> From goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.